This podcast is being brought to you in part by the veteran-founded Hero Soap Company, located in Phoenix, Arizona. In today's environment, we must be aware of the products we apply to our skin. As a two-time cancer survivor, I cannot afford to take chances, and I use these products myself. The soaps will leave you feeling clean and refreshed. All the products made by the Hero Soap Company are made in the United States with the highest quality ingredients sourced from companies in the United States whenever possible. The products are made in small batches to ensure high quality and contain premium essential oils and fragrance. All Hero Soaps are created without synthetic colorants, parabens, and sulfates that are irritating to the eyes, skin, mouth, and lungs, and are cruelty-free, meaning these products are not tested on animals. Each 5-ounce bar of soap is handmade in Phoenix, Arizona, and the body wash is available in 8 ounces with such refreshing scents as the woods, tea tree, lavender, the fields, bourbon, lime, the pines, and arctic. You will absolutely love this soap. Please also check out their gear for sale. All the products are reasonably priced. Being veteran-founded, the company understands the dedication and sacrifice that each family makes to serve their country. A portion of sales is donated back to charities that are focused on helping veterans and our first responders. Over 1,200 bars have been sent to our deployed troops. Please check out their website, HeroSoapCompany.com, for pricing and a detailed description of all the products. When ordering, use the code RAP for a 10% discount. The company information will be listed in the podcast notes and featured on the podcast website, Facebook group, page, and the podcast Instagram. Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. I would like to thank all our listeners, supporters, and sponsors. The podcast is being heard in all 50 states, all provinces of Canada, and over 60 countries around the world. The podcast has been ranked by Feedspot as one of the top 35 overcoming adversity podcasts on the web from thousands in that category, and is ranked by traffic, social media followers, and content freshness. Please visit the podcast website, it's a rapwithrap.com for all the episodes and to order logo merchandise of which a portion of sales is donated to various charities and other information regarding the podcast. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Kim Sorrell. Kim is a writer, speaker, serial entrepreneur, director of a humanitarian organization, activist, mother, grandmother, and lover of all people. Kim is the director of Rays of Hope International, a partnering organization working with people in their own country who have a passion, a vision, a mission to help people in their own country and just need someone to walk alongside. In 2009, while battling breast cancer, her husband, Steve, received a pancreatic cancer diagnosis four months after her diagnosis. Her first book, Cry Until You Laugh, chronicles that journey. 
Kim's award-winning bestseller, Love Is, chronicles her year-long quest to figure out the true meaning of love that led to life-changing discoveries found mostly on the streets of Haiti. Today, Kim is a regular radio, television, and podcast guest. Kim speaks to audiences all over the world. Inspirational and educational, Kim entertains CEOs, industry leaders, company staff members, educators, parents, women's groups, and more. Welcome, Kim, to the podcast. (laughs) Quite an introduction, Ron. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. Honored to have you. And yes, uh, well, you've done a, you've got a lot of accolades there. You've done a lot and uh, happy to happy to give you those accolades. Tell us about your adult years before your breast cancer diagnosis, uh, you being a serial entrepreneur and your family life, your husband, children and all that. Yeah, well, uh, I was going to be the first woman president. That was my goal when I was in high school. And I had Honorable my goal. Thank you. And I had my life laid out in front of me. I knew exactly what I needed to do to get there. And I didn't think a husband and kids would fit into that plan. But I did know if I ever were to meet somebody, he had to have two things. He had to be over six foot tall because my five foot nothing mom married a short man. And I wanted to give my kids a chance at some height. (laughs) And he had to be really good looking because I wanted him to be good looking in my wedding pictures. And so I was obviously a very deep thinker. And uh, and so May of my senior year in high school, this tall, dark, handsome man walked in the room. And 10 days later, I asked him to marry me. And he said, yes. And we got married a little, little less than a year later. And kids started coming a couple of years after that. I've got five kids. But yeah, I started my first business right out of high school and have been in business ever since. That's a lot of years. Uh, so, uh, I, I enjoyed business. It's been great. I coached, um, for 25 years, varsity volleyball and basketball and done a lot of fun things in life. What kind of businesses did you, did you have? Uh, well, we started out with, um, commercial, uh, buildings, commercial industrial buildings and leased space. Um, but I had a golf course and, um, event facilities where we did catering, we did did the whole thing, separate, you know, whatever, a couple different facilities. And one point in time, had a grocery store in St. Croix. I've done different things throughout the years. But um, the one thing that remained at the constant was the golf course and event facilities. Sounds great. Now, 2009 rolls around and you and your husband are empty nesters. And you receive a breast cancer diagnosis. Uh, Tell us about that time and what happened four months later concerning your husband. Yeah, Ron, I think you can probably relate to a lot of this, unfortunately, and anybody else who's ever gotten a diagnosis. But, you know, I expected this lifetime movie moment where my husband and I would be sitting across the desk from a doctor holding hands, holding on to each other, and the doctor would deliver the news in this dramatic moment but it didn't happen anything like that. I got a phone call on a Friday afternoon, blah, blah. You've got breast cancer. We'll call you on Tuesday. And uh, it just was like a sucker punch. Like I didn't even know what to say or how to say it. And, and I cried. I called my husband. I could barely get words out. He was home in a flash and did exactly the right thing. If anybody's ever wondering, what do you do in this moment? My husband did exactly the right thing. He just held me 
we just held on to each other. And that's exactly what I needed right then. And so, absolutely. yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mine came uh, pretty much like yours in the form of a phone call. And of course, I'm sure you had a mammogram and and all that stuff. So you, I'm sure you probably had some idea that it was a possibility, right? Well, I did, but I, I was paddling down the river of denial, Ron. I thought, oh gosh, there's no breast cancer in my family. I'm in my 40s. You know, I didn't fit any of the categories that I had children, like certain things that make you a higher percentage of having yeah. breast cancer. Yeah. I didn't fall under any of those. And so I even fought getting the mammogram. I thought it was just the medical community wanting more money. You know, there's nothing in my family. Why am I doing this? And that led to uh, uh, an ultrasound that led to a biopsy. And even with that, I was like, there's no way, you know, there's, there's no way they're going to call and say that it is. And so I think that's why I was so shocked when they called and did say it was because I wasn't expecting it. I yeah. didn't think it could be possible. Similar to myself, because with male breast cancers, the chances are one in a thousand. And I don't have any history of it in my family as well. But there it is, you know. Yeah, and, right, and right. Like somebody just hit you with a sledgehammer and you're you're pretty much pretty much like you said, in shock, you know. Yeah. And you're thinking, what the heck? What what even just happened, right? I mean, it just comes out of right. left field. Right, so, right. Yeah. Now tell so us did about you, did Pardon? you have a time? Did you have a time leading up to that phone call that you were nervous thinking that it that you could get that phone call yeah yeah i mean um but again it was one in a thousand uh chance and i and, and they didn't really see anything on the on the mammogram i mean they they saw they did the ultrasound and they said ah eh, we don't know you know it might be calcium deposits or whatever uh so yeah it was but yeah, I was kind of like in denial. Eh, you know, it's it's not going to be. But uh, sometimes they come out of left field. Tell us about that time and four months later, considering your husband. Yeah, well, um, just a couple weeks, just a couple weeks after I was diagnosed, my husband started having stomach pain. So he went to the doctor. Where was the pain coming from? Well, he didn't know at the time, and it was unique pain to him. It wasn't pain that he'd experienced before. And so he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, it's just nerves because of what your wife is going through. And so take some Rolaids or some Tums or whatever. Well, two months later, things weren't any better for him. Things were getting worse. So he went to the doctor again, and again, the doctor said, oh, it's just nerves. Take some Rolaids. But he did make an appointment for my husband to see a gastro specialist. So the day before my husband's appointment, which was two months later, we waited two months for that appointment. The day before I or the day of the day of his appointment, I had surgery the very next day and a colonoscopy. So if you've ever had a colonoscopy, you know that you don't really leave your house the day before you need to be close to your bathroom and you really don't want to be anyplace else. Right. So my husband went by himself to the doctor and I was so sad that the timing worked out like that because, um, I was having, a, a, my second surgery, uh, the next day and it, the timing just 
was crappy. And so, and I was the mouth. He was the quiet guy and and I was the mouth and I would be demanding a test and asking questions and, and uh, he wouldn't be so demanding. And he came home and I said, what they say, what they say. And, and he said, same thing, you know, take some times. I was like, oh my word, I couldn't believe it. It was so frustrating because waiting for that appointment. And then a PA says, take some times. So the next day I had surgery and a week later, I was still in bed. They found bladder cancer when they did. I, we had a complete hysterectomy because the kind of breast cancer I had with hormone receptors, it was necessary for me to have the hysterectomy. And they found bladder cancer at the same time. So my recovery was a little different than it would have been um, just with the one surgery. And so I was still laying in bed in elastic waist pants, watching Grey's Anatomy reruns. And my husband woke up that morning and he was just in pain. And I said, that's it. You're going to the hospital, go to the ER. At least they'll run a test. They'll do something. Yeah. They, they won't just sit on it. They'll do something. So he drove himself to the ER. My husband was the greatest rule follower. So if it said no cell phones in the ER, you can bet his cell phone is going to be off. And right. it was. So I waited, waited for a phone call. Finally, he called and he said, uh, I guess they're going to keep me overnight. I'm like, keep you overnight. They don't keep anybody overnight. What are you talking about? Keep you overnight. And so I quickly got on some real clothes and I hopped in my car in my Vicodin induced state, drove like a crazy woman to the hospital. And I was almost there and my phone rang again. And he said, I guess there's a spot on my liver. I'm like, spot on your liver. I just started bawling and I pulled in, parked, and I ran inside holding all parts of my body because everything was sore, found out where he was and he was behind a curtain and I crying tears are streaming down my face and I grab the curtain and I pull it back and he's just sitting on the edge of the bed like nothing is going on and he said listen I'm not going to invite you out anymore if this is the way you're going to behave <laughs> and I said listen buddy you are not allowed to be funny right now and so it uh, took a few days like it typically does with cancer it takes a few days to get a diagnosis and so he spent a few days in the hospital and I was in the bed with him the whole time he was in the hospital. And, and, uh, then we got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Wow. Yeah. Not one that you ever want to hear. No. You know, yeah. And I just want to tell my audience what you're hearing is not let me take a very brief moment out to alert all our patients and caregivers out there that rare patient voice, a supporter of the podcast, is paying for your input. Patients 16 years and older and caregivers, family and friends of any disability, disorder, syndrome, illness, or condition have the opportunity to express their opinions through surveys and interviews to improve medical products and services. Who knows your journey better than you? Rare Patient Voice puts you in touch with researchers who are developing products and services that can help you and others with your condition. These researchers need input of patients to develop products and services that have significant impact on patients' lives. Over the past nine years, Rare Patient Voice has paid patients over $10 million. When you join Rare Patient Voice, you may be invited to participate in interviews, surveys, or online communities where you will share your insights. 
Rare Patient Voice usually has hundreds of studies running at any time, so there are many opportunities to participate. You will earn $120 per hour for participating in these studies. By making your voice heard, you are a catalyst for change. Rest assured, your input will be used to help other patients like you. There is no cost at all to you, the participant. You can get more information and sign up by clicking the link in the sponsor's notes. Typical. It happens every day. Uh, I do support uh, groups uh, with with people with cancer. They go to the doctor. They get this, you know, take Tums, take Rolades, blah, blah, blah. And as Kim said, things got worse. It spiraled down and her husband went to the ER room because they're going to do something in a hospital. So the moral of, the sto- of this story is you have to be your own advocate. And if you have pain and something's not right and you're just getting, you know, you, you know they're not doing the investigation they should be doing, uh, take matters into your own hands, get a referral or or just do what her husband did. Just go to the hospital and just complain and and they'll run tests and figure it out but like i said kim this is this is something that happens every day it's so sad you know i mean that because you know your body better than anyone knows your body right and you know if something's not right right you you can feel it you know some of the time like i had no idea i had cancer but with him he knew it wasn't a stomach pain that he'd ever had before. It was not similar to anything that he'd ever experienced. And, and he pursued, you know, he tried to try to figure it out. And doctors just need to listen, really listen to patients. And when they know something's not right, take it seriously and investigate and, and see what you can figure out for them. Because in my husband's case, had he found out four months Earlier, it really wouldn't have changed anything for him um, because by that point in time, it would have been where it was in January. Um, it's it, it was all throughout his body, basically, and and pancreatic cancer already is not a great diagnosis when it's stage four metastasized in so many places. It's a really bad diagnosis, yeah. and um, so there wasn't a lot of choices for him. In fact, when we walked out of the doctor's office that day, we just said, we're just going to pray that because we believe that there's an afterlife, we believe in in heaven, we believe in God, and that we would pray. And our prayer would be either heal him like you did the, the sick and the blind and the lame or the greatest healing of heaven, but please don't let him suffer. Please don't let him suffer. That was our prayer. And I'll tell you, we had a great six weeks together. We had a great six weeks. We watched Cash Cab. We didn't have any hospital equipment. We just slept in our room. Um, they told us probably a year. And so that's kind of what we were thinking is a year. So we were only six weeks into the year and it was it was great. And then all of a sudden it took a turn. And on a Sunday morning, he woke up and was in pain. And up until then, his pain was totally controlled, that we had a great palliative care doctor. His pain was totally under control. And he woke up in pain. I called the hospice nurse. She came right over and gave him some more morphine to try to get his pain under control. 
And he was sitting on the edge of the bed and I was behind him, holding him from behind because I didn't want him to fall off the bed. And he's kind of rocking because he was in so much pain. And the hospice nurse was a couple feet away on the phone in our bedroom, calling and ordering a hospital bed and commode and whatever. And, uh, and I'm saying, uh, do I call my kids? You know, what do I do? And, she, and she's no, no, no. You got lots of time. You got lots of time. And a couple minutes later, I just didn't feel like I had lots of time. And I just said, should I call my kids? You know, they're not all close by. Like, should I call them? And she said, no, no, no. She said, we're, we're talking probably weeks, if not a couple months, you know, whatever. And, but I could just feel his agony. I could just feel his pain. And man, I love that man. I adored him. He was such a great guy and such a great husband. And we had a wonderful life and and to hold him and feel his suffering i just felt so bad for him and so i just whispered in his ear and i just said baby just go and he took his last breath that was it yeah uh, <clears throat> we're all sorry to hear that what happened to him uh but i i do have to say for our audience again she was getting information you know that her husband, you know, had a lot of time left and, and all that. And I just a side note, I had a pain. We were supposed to go to uh, Europe and uh, we were pulling weeds one day and I had a pain in my side and it just wouldn't go away. And, and it was really getting close to the time we were supposed to take off. And I kept telling my wife, you know, she said, well, finally, she said, maybe you better go to the doctor. I called the doctor. Uh, he thought it was kidney stones or something so i went in and had a ct scan and i had they said don't go anywhere don't leave and i went oh what's going on they came back and they said you're going to surgery right now you have a pe acute appendicitis it burst oh, that's oh, why no. the pain wasn't as intense yeah so so the the thing is for for everyone listening out there something is doesn't feel right keep investigating it I don't care if you got to go to six doctors, but but do what you have to do and just don't sit back and let them, lack of a better term, boss you around and give you the runaround because you know your body, like Kim said. Right, right. Oh, my gosh. Well, and how dangerous that is so dangerous for your appendix to erupt. And how it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I could have got I mean, had I gone on that airplane, I don't think I would have oh. made it. I wouldn't you, have made it. You wouldn't have made it. No, I right. wouldn't. No, because gangrene would have set in, and that would have been that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was crazy. Kind of leads into my next question: What advice do you have for people getting a cancer diagnosis based on your hindsight that you would have done differently? That's a great question. I would say that that the things that you need to do are you do need to be your own advocate. I mean, I got a notebook right away. And, and I uh, had separate areas and one for the oncologist and another for the um, plastic surgeon and another for, you know, whoever, the OB and, and then had notes written and any paper I got, I put in that notebook and tried to just really keep track of things. Right. And then the same then for my husband. And, uh, and you do have to be your own advocate. You got, you have to go into it knowing that, just because they send you to a particular oncologist doesn't mean you have to stick with that oncologist. In fact, 
I believe most insurances will pay for a second opinion when yeah. it comes to cancer. Yeah. And so it's okay to get a second opinion. I, I've known people, maybe you've too known people, Ron, that feel like they got to go to that person because that's who their doctor recommended. Well, if you're not comfortable with that oncologist, if you want to know if there's another treatment, if there's another way to deal with it, right. then go to somebody else. I, I was sent to somebody and got there for my appointment, my first appointment on the, you know, after the phone call and we're nervous, my husband and I there together. And the, our time was 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that. By 11, I still wasn't in with the doctor. And so I asked the front desk and they said, no, no, she's going to be a while yet. And I said, well, how long of a while? Like, should we go out to lunch? Yeah, go ahead, go out to lunch. And so we did. We went out to lunch, came back, still not there. We went and bought some cards. We we're playing gin rummy in the hallway, still not there. Like four o'clock in the afternoon, I finally saw her. She came in for two minutes, it felt like, and just said, da 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 da, schedule surgery, blah, blah, walked out the door. My husband and I just looked at each other like, what just happened? We waited all these hours and this is what we got. And so I knew. I was not comfortable with this. Doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That happened yeah. to me too. Same thing. Did it? Yes. Same thing? Yeah. Just exactly how you're saying it. Waited forever. Did actually meet the, the oncologist was not comfortable with the situation at all. And I found somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Which it I was almost like divine intervention. I went back to my GP. I told him what what's going on. He goes, I've got somebody for you. I'll make a call right now. And he got me in the next day. Wow. So it wow. can happen. Yeah. Yep. It sure can. It sure yeah. can. And the person I ended up with was uh uh her specialty was breast cancer and she was a uh um oncologist and surgeon. So, you know, quite often you go to an oncologist, somebody else does the surgery. Yeah. She she's both. She handles it all. And so the, to go to somebody like her and she was fabulous she was wonderful i was so happy that i made the change yeah absolutely how did you and your husband handle those dual diagnoses together how'd you guys handle it, that uh you know it was an interesting time because you know I'm, i was 47 my husband was 51 and you think you're going to be that couple that grows old together and be not in your 90s sitting on a porch in rockers, sipping lemonade and smiling at each other or whatever couples do in their 90s. And and here we are facing this terminal diagnosis with my husband. And by that point in time, you know, four months in, we knew that the chances were real good. I was going to survive my cancer. And uh, but we also knew chances were real bad that my husband would. And there was, yeah. you know, slum to none chance. And so it was an interesting time because because of so many things. I mean, it's so unexpected, the timing, the our ages, just kind of everything, the, our dreams for the future, like what we thought was going to be was no longer going to be. And so uh, we didn't talk about it a ton, to be honest. Every once in a while, I would just start crying because I, I stayed home. I mean, we just stayed home together during that time. And he really didn't want me to go anywhere, not even the grocery store. Like he wanted me there every minute. And people were great, family and friends, wonderful, going to the store for us and, and doing things for us. They were so amazing. 
But there were times I would just start crying. And he would just hold me and he'd say, don't cry for me. Don't cry for me. I know where I'm going. You're the one that has to stay here. And, you know, my husband was, I can't stress enough. He really was a great guy. And to go to heaven at 51 and never pay another bill and never get sick again, you know, no pain, no illness. You know, I, I cheered him on. I'm like, go you, you know, great for you. Sad for me, but great for you. You start uh, journaling by sending out emails about your journey in, t- in 2008. Describe the result of that and what it led to. I think it led to uh, a book. It did. It did. Yeah. I went to the to the bookstore right after I was, I got my phone call on Friday, Saturday morning. I went to the bookstore and everything was either depressing or very medical. And I thought, I want to know what it feels like. I want to know what I'm going to go through. Do I have choices? Are there things that, that I need to know? That's what I wanted to know. And so I started writing and kind of as a way to update family and friends instead of making a whole bunch of phone calls. I'm having surgery tomorrow, you know, whatever. And, but it was so much more than just an update on what was going on medically. And before I knew it, 5,000 people were reading the emails that I was sending out as I was sending them out. Cause I wrote kind of when I felt like it. And so people all over the world were reading the emails and, and then I continued to write, of course, when my husband was diagnosed, I'm still going through. So it's not like I finished writing and continue to write after losing my husband. So I wrote for about a year, a little over a year. And I thought that was going to be it. It was very therapeutic for me and touched people. So, you know, it was a win-win. And I had somebody just encourage me to make it a book. And and she took it really and, and made it a book. She made it happen. And so Cry Until You Laugh is the name of that book. And it is, it is the things that I wrote, you know, it's, it is taken right from that. No rewrite, no anything. It's how I felt in the moment on those particular days. And so that is, uh, that is that book. What was the last line you wrote in that book? I believe it's on tomorrow. I leave for Haiti, something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts, Kim, about, and your personal philosophy on the grieving process. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm actually writing a book on grieving right now. Really? I have a, a co-author who is amazing. She's uh, a medium. And so we come from our own unique perspectives. And it, I think it's going to be a great book. But my part of the thing with grieving is uh, people would tell me I was doing it wrong. And I thought, well, what is right? You know, how, how do you grieve right? Yeah, yeah. And I've heard other people tell other people they're not handling grief right. They're not doing it right. Well, somebody, however many years ago, wrote... The podcast is so happy and proud to have Blue Sky CBD as one of our sponsors and supporters. At Blue Sky CBD, they know that the highest quality CBD starts from the seed. Blue Sky partners with sustainable, responsible farms for superior hemp plants to extract their CBD and other healthful phytonutrients. Each of Blue Sky's products contain high concentrations of CBD for maximum impact, and Blue Sky offers some of the lowest cost per milligram CBD on the market. 
All Blue Skies products are THC-free and are tested by a third-party laboratory for potency and purity. All this has made Blue Sky one of the only brands trusted by healthcare professionals across the United States. As the demand for CBD and its therapeutic potential have grown rapidly worldwide, it's difficult to know which products you can trust. At Blue Sky CBD, they don't just sell their products, they use their products. Blue Sky CBD proudly shares testimonials of their loved ones who use these products. Blue Sky CBD guarantees the potency and purity of each and every product they sell. Blue Sky tests their products three times. First, the plant is tested, next the isolate, and last, the final product to ensure each product batch meets Blue Sky's high standards. A copy of the certificate of analysis is linked below each product description online. The Blue Sky CBD website contains client testimonials, including a case study for each testimonial from people just like you regarding people dealing with severe anxiety and insomnia, high blood pressure, pain management, headache, rheumatoid arthritis and spondylitis, and endocrine balance. Blue Sky even makes the product Pet Love for our canine and feline family members. There is some confusion between medical marijuana, CBDs that contain THC, and the THC-free hemp CBDs within states. Blue Sky CBD uses CBD derived from hemp that is THC-free, which is drug-free and can be sold everywhere legally. Blue Sky CBD wants you to feel confident with your purchase and offers you excellent customer service. If you are not satisfied with their products, you may request a refund of the full purchase price within 30 days of the product received date. When ordering, please use the podcast link to receive 20% off your initial purchase. The link and website information will be listed in the podcast notes. The list of this is how you grieve and you do it in this order. So people think if you're not angry and you know, you're not going through the right steps, that you're not doing it right. And for some reason, we feel like we have the liberty to judge other people's grief. Which doesn't well, make any sense. It doesn't, does it? No. So people are going to grieve the way they're going to grieve. Sure. And the rest of us should back off and give them the freedom to do that. Absolutely. But Absolutely. then I think, yeah, I think something else that happens though, Ron, is that when, when you're grieving, deep in grieving, you can get stuck in it. You can get so stuck in it that you, that you start to think that if you are happy again, if you laugh again, that you're somehow dishonoring the person you lost. Right. That how can you be happy when they're gone? And I just believe the opposite is true. I think the way to honor whoever it is that you've lost is to live fully, live completely, you know, live a life of service, help other people, uh, but be happy. And, and fully live, fully engaged with the people around you. I think that is the most honoring way. But I think sometimes people need permission to come out of that grief. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to laugh again. And I don't think, I think any way somebody grieves that makes them feel comfortable is the way they grieve. And that's it. I don't think anybody needs to tell anybody how to grieve. I definitely agree with you there. Uh, 2010, you complete the breast cancer journey. And what did you decide going forward? I know Haiti was involved. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I'd been running a nonprofit uh, before I was diagnosed, stepped down from that position. And and 
So I was doing work before then in uh, developing nations around the world. And I uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do when I was finally healthy enough to go back to work. I didn't know if I was going to go back into my businesses, but I had people running them. So I really didn't have to. I didn't know if I was going to go back into the nonprofit world. And I happened to run into a man who was running an organization that my father and I had started 10 years before then. And I ran into him between Christmas and New Year's and at a grocery store. And I said, hey, you know, do, do you need any help? You know, and I, I said, how about the books? And he said, oh, sure. Oh, my gosh, if you could do the books. I said, yeah, great. So January 1, I started out as a part-time bookkeeper for this organization, Rays of Hope. And 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. 200,000. 200,000 people. Yeah. So I went from part-time bookkeeper to 24-7. And within a couple of weeks after that, I was in Haiti. And then for the next several years, I was in Haiti for at least part of every month. So you started January 1, 2010. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a couple of years into helping in Haiti you question what is love really? And you dedicated a year uh, to live love by taking a 2,000-year-old poem and taking one word a month to live by. Uh, What was the biggest surprise and takeaways from that year that you lived love? Oh, my goodness. So many. So many. And what, what was the name of that poem? Well, it's uh, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. You hear it at a lot of weddings. And um, there are actually 14 is's and isn'ts of love in in that chapter. And so uh, it took me a little bit longer than a year doing one a month. But what I soon discovered is that if you put love is or love is not in front of any word, it completely changes the meaning of the word. I thought it was going to be easy. I thought, you know, love is patient. We know what patience is, right? You're not honking your horn if you're stuck in traffic, you know, whatever. We know what patience is. But love that is patient, I figured I was completely different than just what patience is. And so every, every word was like that. And so much that we're taught about love really is not love. There are things done in the name of love, said in the name of love that have absolutely nothing to do with love. And in discovering the true meaning of love, what love really is, uh, it just rocked my world. It, it totally changed my life. What word, Kim, had the biggest impact on you? You know, the the one that I dreaded doing was love keeps no record of wrongs. It's the only one that I didn't do in order. The rest of them went month by month. But that one I kept putting off because I thought, what could that possibly mean? Because, it, you know, you might forgive people, but you don't forget the things that happen to you, right? right? So it's not like you wipe your brain clean. And so what does that mean? Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. And that month, I happened to be asked by a, a guy in the U.S. to show him a water project I was working on in Haiti. And so he brought eight guys from the U.S. over and two of my Haitian friends went with us to translate and they knew the water project inside and out because they've been working on it. And we drove out into the countryside to where we were going to work and stay. And we got got there and it was a little building with two rooms. And each room had four twin size beds. So there's 
eight American men, two Haitian men and me. But we brought along two cots and an air mattress. So I'm thinking, well, we'll just move things around. We're okay. You only go in the room to sleep. It's so hot in Haiti. It's not like you're hanging out in the bedroom. And so we no sooner got there than the man in charge of the American men pulled me aside. Kim, Kim, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. And he said, did you see the rooms? And I'm thinking, buddy, there's nothing else to see. And then I thought, oh, he's asking me because he's going to think I want my own room. So I'll say, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he'll say, oh, no, if anyone should sleep inside, it should be you. And I'll, I'll say, well, I don't care if there's other people in my room. And they'll say, good, because there's only so much space. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because we've got men on this trip that would not be comfortable with a woman in their room. Now, what he thought could happen in a room full of people in the middle of the night, I have no idea. I wear pajamas to bed. I don't have any idea what, what could have possibly happened. But I said I'd sleep outside, so I had to figure it out. I had to do it. I thought about sleeping in a truck, and it's so hot. That wouldn't work. And I saw this piece of plywood being held up by these two wooden structures. And I thought, well, if I put the air mattress under there, at least if it rains, I won't get wet. So the first night, I blow up the air mattress and crawl in. And I'm scared because there are tarantulas and there are snakes. Yeah. There are chupacabras or whatever is lurking in the bushes of Haiti. And I was not real comfortable sleeping on the ground outside. I was afraid. Like, what could possibly come and attack me? You know, am I going to lose a limb? Are they going to be able to airlift me out of this place to Miami in time? Or, you know, what is going to happen? And so I just was praying, please, 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 please don't let anything happen. So I'm on the air mattress that held air for about an hour. And then I'm on gravel and it was so loud because there were dogs barking and horns honking. And finally, sometime after midnight, that died down. And then shortly thereafter, voodoo drums started in the distance. And then that kept me awake. Finally, that stopped and I was able to doze off. First night came and went, no problem. Second night, same thing. No air in the air mattress. I'm sleeping on gravel, the dogs, the horns, the voodoo drums. Finally, I'm asleep. But I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I thought, oh my word, what could it possibly be? Does Haiti have the anti-venom to whatever is about to bite me? And so I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes and it was a chicken. There was a dang chicken on my leg. I shoot it away. I didn't know whether to be happy that it wasn't something worse or mad that woke me up from the little sleep that I was getting. Well, the third night came and went, no problem. Fourth night, same thing. I'm on the gravel, the dogs and horns, the voodoo drums, finally asleep. But again, I woke up because again, there was something on my leg. And again, I was scared to death. So again, I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes. And again, it was the dang chicken. And again, I didn't know whether to be happy or mad. But that night we had chicken for dinner. So the fifth night came and went with no problem. (laughs) And, you know, I have to tell you, Ron, at first I was bitter. I thought, God, would my sons treat a woman like this? Like I was, I felt like I was being treated subhuman, Yeah, you know, not just a different gender, but, but, you know, you're less than us. So you go sleep outside, you know, even though I offered, I, I still felt like 
why didn't somebody step up and go, why is Kim sleeping outside, you know, but nobody did. And so I was, I was kind of bitter. And then I thought, you know, bitterness only hurts me. They don't know I'm mad. I'm volunteered to sleep outside. They have no idea that I'm upset. So I can't be bitter, but, but I was kind of mad. And then, then it hit me. I was working on love keeps no record of wrongs. And I finally figured out what it meant. And what it means is, yeah, you remember the things that happened to you, but the mood changes, the, the, the narrative changes, the tone of the story changes. Instead of these rotten guys that did this rotten thing to me, it's this kind of funny story that made it so I can sleep anywhere in the world and be perfectly comfortable because we get to pick. We get to pick how we take anything in, right? We get right. to pick the tone of the story. And so love that keeps no record of wrongs just changes the narrative. Wow. And that was the most challenging word. It was. Yeah. Now, there were life-changing discoveries you found on the streets of Haiti. Can you tell us maybe about one of those? Yes. Well, um, I'll tell you, if I would have only done the first month, if if all I would have done was the first month, I, I it would have been a victory. Because love is patient is huge when you know what the true meaning is. And, oh, my, we were having a nightmare down at the docks, getting this container, this 40-foot container released from the docks and paying to marriage every day. And it was costing us money. And finally, we got it released. And then it was just a, it was one bad thing after a next that kept happening and happening. And everything we did was wrong. And it was just a fiasco. And I was working on love is patient. And by now it's the end of the month because I've been looking for it everywhere and not figuring it out. And so what I learned about love that is patient is first of all, I think you're supposed to love everybody. It's really the best way to live, you know, and it's kind of our only job, right? We don't need to judge people. We don't need to condemn people. All you need to do is love people. That's all right. you need to do. So if you love everybody and you love with love that is patient, you recognize that this is the most important moment of your life. What's in the past is in the past and what's in the future is yet to come. This is the most important moment. And so you should be fully here, fully engaged, really listening to who it is that you're with. That is love that is patient. And Ron, I stunk at this. I was horrible. I thought I was this grand multitasker. Like I could think about a meeting I had later and who needed to get to soccer practice, what we were going to have for dinner and be fully engaged at the same time. Yeah. And I quickly discovered that that is not true. And I needed to focus. I needed to practice and practice and practice this. But when I did, it changed my life because instead of hearing things that I assume are being said, based on what I know about somebody or where we are or whatever it happens to be, I was hearing people's actual words, their actual words. I learned so much when I shut off the rest of the world and truly engaged with who I was with, everything changed. When you're authentically there, when you're really listening and fully engaged, people know, people know, and they feel loved because that's what patient love does. Otherwise, if you're distracted, my word, you're, you're not feeling real liked right then. You know, you're right. not feeling the love because because that's not what love is. It's not what love that is patient is. It's be in the moment, be engaged. Yeah. 
Now, you write the book, Love Is. Tell us a little bit about it, and what will the reader learn about love from that book? Well, it it chronicles my journey, basically. And so uh, it's month by month, what I discovered each month. And so I start out each chapter with what I think it is. You know, love is kind. You know, we all know what kind is. You know, like, I just quite often thought it was going to be so easy, but it never was. And then, so then I tell the story of what I got hit over the head with to finally realize what the true meaning of whatever it was that I was working on was. And so, you know, I slept outside with the tarantulas and snakes. I got chased by a motorcycle gang. I got lost on a mile high mountain, like crazy things happened that brought me to the revelations that I found. And so I tell those stories. And I, I just tell people what I, what I know, what I learned about love and, and dispel some of the myths about love. Where can your books be purchased? Everywhere. They're anywhere online, Amazon, whatever. My latest book, Love Is, that's available in brick and mortar stores as well, Barnes and Noble, wherever. But it's a dark blue cover. I can't believe I don't have one right in front of me. But oh, I see it. Yeah, I see it oh, back see there. It? Yeah, I see oh, yeah. it. Over my shoulder. For, yeah, those, for those who aren't on YouTube, I can, the book's right behind her. It's just <laughs> Love Is. Love Is. Yeah. So easy name to remember. Uh, dark blue cover, Kim Sorrell. My name's a little more difficult because it has way too many letters. It's kind of obnoxious. It has two R's, two E's, two L's. I don't know why, but it's S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E. Right. But Love Is. And so, yes, it's available everywhere. And it has been quite the ride, I have to say. Because even if nobody ever read my book, I needed to do this. Even if I didn't write a book, I needed to do this. Because where I was in life after going through what I went through and then losing my husband, the man I adored, I needed to do this sort of pilgrimage year that I did, year plus that I did. And and so it was so good for me. But then to now see how it's helping other people blows my mind. Like uh, it's helping couples. I get emails from couples that have stayed together, or families that had somebody estranged from the family that they're reunited or um, just all kinds of wonderful things are happening. And people are buying more than one. People are uh, buying them for their, their whole family, their adult kids, and then getting on a Zoom once a month and doing a chapter a month and and uh, really talking about it and figuring it out for themselves and and uh, so it's really been, it's been cool to see. I got to say, I'm, I, I love it that people are learning about it love. It sounds great. And I love the fact that you're helping people and people are finding out about it. And hopefully more people find out about it through the podcast. What's next for Kim Sorrell? <laughs> well, I am working on a book on grief because I do think that's an important topic. You know, I right. think people, people need to get some permissions and, and people need to grieve the, how they feel they should grieve. And I just started another project, another book that my working title is Mother Goofs, Seven Things My Kids Tell Me That I Screwed Up and How They Would Fix It. Oh, and okay. so that's more just a fun book to write. <laughs> the book on grief is a little heavier, but also fun to write. But love i mean my my passion is for the world to know what love really is because the world would change the world would be a different place if people really lived love 
Absolutely. And we can tell from from your voice and your passion that you really you really mean what you write about, which is which is great. Kim, what what words of advice do you have for someone uh, to inspire others? You know, one thing that people can do, people, I, I believe, is to serve, to serve, it, do something, do something, whatever it is. You don't have to go to Haiti like I did. You don't have to go out of the country to serve. You don't even have to volunteer at an organization. If you see someone who needs help in the grocery store, you know, because they're juggling babies and trying to push their cart out to their car and get the groceries in and you go help them, that's serving, you know, opening the door for people, just showing love and being kind to people, that's serving. And if everybody did something, you know, whatever it is, the tiniest thing, the biggest thing, you know, somebody's sick and they really need a meal, they send out a card, whatever it is, just serve, serve. It does more for you in the end than it does for somebody else, than it does for the person you're serving. Because there's this incredible thing about love that that you can't outgive it. No matter how hard you try, you can't outgive it. And so uh, you want to be happier? You want to have a fuller life? Just serve. Great advice. How can people contact you? KimSorrell.com is my website. Again, S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E, all the letters, but KimSorrell.com. But if you if you Google Love Is and Kim Sorrell, you'll find me. But uh, I've got a free 14-day love challenge on my website. Anyone is welcome to come on and do it. If you sign up for it, I'll even send you for free a WWLD wristband, What Would Love Do? Because I think if you can answer any question that way, then you're going to be doing the right thing. And I'll send that out for free, but it's a free 14 day love challenge. Uh, no strings attached. Just come and, and learn about love. Well, that sounds great. And uh, for our audience that will be in the podcast notes. Uh, I want to thank you, Kim, for sharing your, your deeply personal story with us. I wish you nothing but uh, success and happiness going forward. And it was a, it was just a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much, Ron. It was a pleasure talking to you. And and your show should be on everybody's podcast list. You, well, we're working you're on it. You're incredible. Yeah, you're incredible. And your show is great. So well, thank, thank you, you. Thank for you so how much. you're serving what you're doing. Well, yeah. Uh, and and that's how I started this podcast uh, was to serve. And, and it, it makes me happy when I get, and I do get a lot of feedback, you know, that people are, are happy what I'm doing uh, on the podcast. And we also have a Facebook group uh, as well. And and we're doing a lot of good things there too. Uh, comments and suggestions for the podcast, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Our website is it's a wrap with rap.com. All the episodes are on there. The uh, logo store is on there. And half of the uh, sales uh, from the logo merchandise goes to a charity when we change the charities every month or so. And we also have a newsletter uh, and you can sign up for that on the uh, website. We have a Facebook group. It's a wrap with rap and we're on Instagram. It's a wrap with rap podcast. And now we're on Twitter at rapper W R A P P E R one thirty, And we're of course, all the episodes are on YouTube. It's a wrap with rap, the podcast uncut. I want to thank uh, everyone for listening. I want everyone to please stay safe. 
And for now, it's a wrap.